This is Brain Matters, the podcast where we explore the brain with the scientists who study it. Here's today's host, Matt Davis. Hey guys, this is Matt Davis. In this episode, I had a chat with Dr. Alyssa Brewer, a scientist at the University of California at Irvine. Dr. Brewer is interested in the fundamental properties of visual processing in the brain. She uses functional MRI, or fMRI, to measure the dynamics of visual spatial maps. Now, you may be wondering, what is a brain map, and how are they generated? These maps describe the observation that neighboring neurons in certain brain regions respond to similar aspects of a stimulus. For example, light enters your eye and hits a particular group of neurons in your retina. This information is sent along a neural path to your visual processing areas, which are located at the back of your brain. Neighboring neurons in these regions are more likely to represent similar areas of the visual field. If you were able to look at the activities of these neurons as a whole, you would see many clusters of neurons, with each cluster representing similar regions in the visual field. This is similar to what Dr. Brewer measures with fMRI. Now, it is important to note that there are other maps in the visual system that are described by neurons responding to other aspects of visual information, such as orientation and motion. One theory on why these maps are important is that they reduce the wiring constraints on the brain. This makes intuitive sense. Keeping neurons that perform similar functions close together could make information processing more efficient. Dr. Brewer is able to perturb the organization of these visual maps through the use of special goggles, called prism goggles, that reverse the left and right halves of the visual field. She can measure the amount of disturbance with fMRI. This is a truly amazing demonstration of plasticity in the adult human brain. I was totally psyched to talk to Dr. Brewer about this research, so let's get to the interview. In your uh, current research, you study human visual processing. Mm -hmm. um, can you just give us a general overview of how that works in the brain? I'm with functional MRI looking primarily at cortex and the main part of the brain. It's nothing coming in to the eyeball or kind of optic tracts coming in. Um, we do behavioral work trying to see how behavior does interact with brain processing. My work primarily focuses on maps of visual space in the brain. So the brain's organized in the visual cortex according to how the world we see is organized, how the retina is organized. And um, this gives me the ability to look at really fundamental questions of visual processing. We have a lot of information coming in through one early primarily visual cortex area, V1, and then higher and higher stages of visual processing happen in what we call higher order visual areas. So each of these visual areas represents some aspect of visual space. And as we move through this hierarchy, we get more complex computations arising, things like motion processing, color processing, object recognition, attention, working memory, different ways of uh, dealing with this visual information. Starts getting into multi-sensory areas where you're looking across modalities. So auditory and visual processing can happen, or somatosensory and visual processing can happen, or visual motor integration can happen. So my type of work looks at this cortical organization that underlies all of these types of computations. We think this visual-spatial organization exists throughout most of the visual cortex. It may or may not be important for the computations, but the information comes in with the early retinal input and then continues to be propagated through the system. Uh, so it's available to the brain to use if needed. Do you think these maps are sort of 
a result of developmentally or plasticity-based mechanisms that they just happen to represent the same areas because it's just easier to encode things if the neurons are close to each other. Uh, yeah, so evolutionarily, we see some of these maps persist across species. In some cases, they don't. But the primary visual cortex does, and it's it that's genetically driven by different molecular gradients that get set up. Um, and the thought is that it does reduce the wiring constraints to map one part of space to the next part of space. And so the neurons that represent similar parts of the visual world but do different computations can more easily talk to each other if they're organized kind of with their neighbors. So we have one group going to the next group all in these organized patterns. You could wire it up that they were not organized, but it probably is easier to integrate across the visual scene and little local regions if they're next to each other. So I, I think at the least the lowest computational levels, the wiring very good if you're next to each other. And as you get higher and higher up, you're pooling across larger and larger regions of visual space. And so drawing up that information from the um, early visual areas to the higher order areas just gets larger and larger kind of receptive field of views of the world across a big range of neurons. And that just merges together now. It kind of right on top of propagates this visual field map, propagates through the system that way. So in your current work, what specific contributions are you making and what questions are you asking and answering? So I have three different focuses of my research. One is this fundamental organization. How far do we see this map of visual space, these multiple maps of visual space go? Is, there has been a lot of debate on that the maps of visual space go away because it's no longer important when you once, to get, once you get up to object recognition level. And I'm like, oh, it's a banana. You can tell it's a banana no matter where you are in visual space. But we actually see um, while this receptive field in these regions are very large and covering a wide part of visual space, we do see differences in the very centers of these receptive fields. So we see that there are still at least remnants of this visual spatial organization. Mm -hmm. And the reason that's useful to us is we can look in individual subjects and define the same functional region in every individual subject using these maps and then measure different aspects of that region of cortex. How well does it see a banana? How well does it remember a banana? What color processing happens on the banana in this region of cortex defined by a different measure, which would be the measure of visual space. How does that variability sort of manifest across subjects? Are they pretty similar in uh, terms of the maps? And Everybody has all the maps, but their position varies pretty wildly. And it's overlooked quite a bit in general in this field. So there's a lot of group averaging that happens across brains, and people get coarser responses of like these spots of activity. Well, we can tell you where you are in this visual hierarchy by measuring these maps. And primary visual cortex is the most stable of all the maps, and it varies by a factor, at least a factor of three in size across individuals. Yeah. So you can imagine as that gets bigger, it pushes everything somewhere else. And we see the higher order areas being much more variable and where, they're, the, where the functional responses of visual space are located with respect to the underlying brain anatomy. So it kind of moves across different regions. So when you try to just average across people, it moves a bit. And if you just take the functional measurement, say, of color processing, where that, and then look based on anatomy. I'm going to look at this piece of anatomy and see how color responsive it is. Um, that's quite not quite how it tracks across individuals. You have to look within the specific map of visual space and then look how color responsive that region is. And that then is independent more of where it is on the curve of the brain. After um, listening to your talk, I was fascinated by the prism goggles <laughs> uh, experiments. Um, what what is the motivation for those experiments, and what is it actually doing? You know, can you explain that? To yeah. Us? So that was what I just talked about was the fundamental part of my work. But it, we use these maps then to track changes in the brain. And uh, both in disease, like can we track disease and treatments for disease like stroke or Alzheimer's and watch how these maps de degrade or come back, uh, representations of visual space shift. And if the prism goggles, we wanted to see if we could change visual inputs and cause a change in normal brains. And so uh, it was my, actually my first 
project as a professor, which was a little too big of a project probably to do early on, but it was really fun. And we went, yes, we should try this. Yeah. Looking back, I'm like, I should have done some easy ones. I got everything working. I make everything work while doing this project. So um took a little while. But the motivation was to see if there's a way to induce and control plasticity in cortex. Can we make the brain reorganize and do behavioral interventions that cause changes in the brain? My graduate work had looked at some retinal lesion studies in monkeys and other human studies where we did not see in adult animals uh, very much change in the brain following these mm-hmm. retinal changes, which was disturbing because we would like to be able to come in and cure strokes and retinal diseases yeah, and absolutely. aspects in cortex. So uh, prism goggles, we'd heard reports of behaviorally these massive changes happening when people go from not being able to move through the world to moving through the world and saw some coarser studies of a few V1 responses early visual cortex responses. So we decided to try this and really thinking of visual motor integration pathways, started looking around cortex. What are the prism goggles doing in your case to the subjects? What so are... they take the full left-right reversal of the visual field. Wow. And wow. so they have to wear those for two weeks straight and move oh my through gosh, the world yeah. with no other visual input. So they go from How nothing to How does that even move. work? Like, <laughs> don't they just fall over all the time? They do. Or, yeah, yeah. Well, they start out, it's like looking through a jittery camera where you're running around and the horizon is not stabilized at all. And yeah. When I put them on, I can't really get out of the chair. People <laughs> vary in how much they can uh, move around initially, uh, which is interesting as well. We see some gamers first-person shooter gamers do a better job moving through the world, potentially, this very small population, yeah. than the non-gamers like me at the time. But now we're, we're interested to see like what variations happen here. We do see some differences in genetics across individuals and how well they can adapt to a fully left-right reversed world. So you imagine you try to see reach to the world when everything is shifted completely opposite yeah. of the world. You have a lot of issues. So, so they're going through their day. You know, They're eating food and they got the... They're trying to do visual integration tasks and everything, and they're going to class and stuff. And yeah, we tried, we tried to do it because the first four days they spend a lot of time feeling really nauseous and motion yeah. sick and cannot really function at all. So we did this usually during holidays time for okay, undergraduate yeah. grad students because yeah. or during like easy class times. Yeah, because we didn't want them to miss finals or <laughs> midterms or we work very well. So they did... Um, Can I get an extension? My yeah. Left, my left and right <laughs> my visual field. Some of them went to class yeah. still, but we, we did it in three peoples. It was considered like a heroic study because we had to uh, care for them all day and have caretakers at home at night and get approval to do this without injuring our subjects at all. And so yeah. be very careful they couldn't like chop vegetables or, <laughs> or drive a yeah. car. Yeah. Um, so they put these goggles on, and about a week in, they were able to move actually really well through the world. So it was a striking change over just a week. And they had slept in like blackout masks and took showers with blackout goggles on and only looked through this left-right reversed world. And interestingly, over about a week, they started forgetting what left and right were. And mm. so they, what do you called, mean? they called it, uh, for a while they'd say, well, there's new left and old left. So you tell me to turn left and they had then after that they forgot which one was new left and which one was old left. And we'd seen this report in the literature some before behaviorally that people lost track of space around them. Yeah. Um, and it got so problematic for some subjects when they would get up in the night with their eyes closed to say you'd go to the bathroom in their house they'd lived in forever. They would walk the wrong way and walk into walls. Wow. So we had to make sure that caretakers would follow, follow them in the night even because they, with their eyes closed, so no visual input being weird. They, mm-hmm. Their memory, their spatial memory of the house was dis- disrupted. That's amazing. Which is yeah. pretty interesting. So yeah. we're interested to see now how all these different sensory modalities interplay with this. But um, And then we looked at how the brain changed over these two weeks and found region-involved visual motor integration is able to shift from representing the opposite side of the world, which is normal, to representing the same side of the world. So we see this new emergence of maps in cortex happening just with this kind of major disruption of the visual sure. pathways. 
Interesting, when they took the goggles back off, it takes them a whole day to go back to normal vision. And people always are shocked that, well, I can't just take these off and look see the world like normal again. Well, the brain has changed so much to adapt to this strange uh, shifting that it um, has lost a little bit of its earlier... It's kind of like when you are out at sea for a long time, yeah, and then you exactly. come back, like, you're a little bit, it takes you maybe a day or two to get used to yeah. the new feeling, so... Yeah, we have, it's a lot like that, and actually the vestibular system for balance it plays a role in this as well, because it is very disruptive initially, and that's part of why it's so hard to move through the world. Not only you don't know how you're reaching, but you can't figure out what's stable, so I'll end up crooked and stuck in a wall, because I keep bending the wrong direction trying to make my head stay upright. Um, and this is something that happened for a day after they took the goggles back off, but they were able to transition back pretty quickly compared to the first time. Do you have uh, some theories about what is happening at the level of the neuron, and and sort of the reorganization there, what's happening? Yeah, so we're thinking, we didn't quite know what to expect, so we're excited to see that we actually could measure change. It was possible that we wouldn't see any changes in parts of the visual cortex, but uh, we did, and so and primarily in these higher order areas where we think they're mapping from vision to motor outputs, and it could be reflecting kind of more downstream, higher order motor outputs coming back, uh, altering these neurons. But um, we, we view this not as growing new parts of the brain, but changing kind of the weighting of re, a pre-existing connections. So we have our normal connections where these parts of the brain primarily represent the opposite side of the world. Uh, left hemisphere representing right side of the world and right hemisphere representing left. And these regions do have some input from both sides. So we think the same side or ipsilateral side of the world is very low-level input, and with the adaptation to the prism goggles over that week, that these inputs or synapses get reweighted and strengthened. Um, so we see these coming online and being stronger over a two-week period. The normal inputs still stay there. It takes about a day to adjust back to them, but it doesn't take a full two weeks to go back to it. And then we, we expected these ipsilateral maps to potentially stay around as well if this were true. And so we put two of our subjects back in the goggles for five days a couple months later and saw them adapt within a day or so back to the mm-hmm. now left-right reversed world again. So it looks like we are maybe changing this weighting in a way that's uh, persistent at least for several months. So what comes next for your lab and what are you thinking about looking into? So a lab does has several questions. We're looking in stroke rehab and maybe using, we're not allowed yet to put prism goggles on stroke patients, but looking to see at different behavioral training paradigms and how um, this uh, can help with uh, stroke recovery. Our MRI measurements have some very specialized measurements. Let us look at receptive fields per little group of neurons in the brain, which is unusual um, so far. And so it, it lets us opens up a lot of doors to seeing a lot of details about how the brain's changing that we couldn't before. So we're using this to look at this type of remapping with prism goggles, starting looking at more disease aspects of it. Um, and then we also want to branch into stay with normal subjects and look to see how different sensory, um, different senses interact with the visual pathway. So we noticed that our subjects had very rapid adaptation of the auditory systems to the visual systems, whereas somatosensory was in conflict with their visual input for quite a, quite a while during the adaptation. So I can look at those. I started working in auditory cortex, actually, to do this in the future. So we're looking at similar maps over there and start looking to see how they change potentially as Great. well. Um, what uh, do you see in the next 10 years or so? For fMRI, is there something sort of on the horizon that's gonna be that's gonna change the field in small ways or big ways, or what sort of new developments? I think getting more high-resolution mapping will be useful. 
things we may limit to how high resolution we can go, looking at our visual field map experiments so far. If you get like almost down to laminar level of structure, you lose a lot of the information that we currently have, which is interesting. It looks more popcorn-y versus a smooth map of space. So there seems to be an ideal size of measurement. But I think tying together fMRI with connectivity measurements like diffusion tensor imaging will be really useful. And as we get especially better at structural measurements like DTI, to look at connectivity, we'll start understanding more about how these different functional measurements line up. Um, people also looking at multivariate pattern analysis, MVPA, which I think will be a better way to break apart some of these large kind of cluster spot on brain responses that uh, people have been measuring for a while in fMRI, and hopefully integrating these types of measurements with visual field maps and vision and maps of fundamental sensor organization across cortex and using several lines of research to come together. So I think kind of merging with other measurements will be really key. Yeah, do you think some of these big neuroscience projects like the connectome and the uh, functional ectome, I don't know what they're called, <laughs> yeah, but you know, I don't know what they're these, yeah. there's all sorts of ohms out there. Yeah. Is that sort of going to, you know? I think, I think if, yes, I think that's a good way to go that these data are so time intensive and they're so large of data sets that having these big collaborative um, projects plus databases of some of these results will be really useful for figuring out uh, how the brain works. Um, I do think that we need to do both group-level analysis and individual subject-level analysis, though, to really understand what's going on. So, um, And I think we need to solve one of the problems some of those databases have is other people accessing them don't quite know how to deal with the data and getting kind of infrastructure in there and the support staff in a way who would allow other researchers to access like the connectome itself without knowing the data format or what these data mean. So yeah, some curators. Yeah, exactly. Right. Like, yeah. Oh, you'd like to see this part of the brain? Yeah. I'll send you over here because mm -hmm. it's going to be such a massive amount of data. But I'm hopeful that it'll become a very useful thing. Kind of normal atlases we need of all of these measurements. Were any of your parents academics or sort of how? No, they were not. They. Mom was a teacher for elementary school. My dad's yeah. a lawyer, tax attorney in Orange County. So mm -hmm. not at all. They're still probably not sure exactly what I do sometimes, but yeah, <laughs> I think they've I, learned a lot over the years. <laughs> I can tell you about how I got into this field. Yeah, I'd love so, to hear that. So I, well, I wanted to be a vet forever. Yep. A vet, a scientist, a rancher, and a vet was kind of my growing up set of things in third grade that I had a list of doing. And I, I, I like animals. So I got me into science, I think, by being interested in becoming a vet. Sure. Went to college at Stanford, and they don't have a vet program. And I realized after working with vets during high school that they really were not the most careful in terms of the science sometimes, and I really started liking the science aspect of things. College, I did biology then, and started thinking about being pre-med instead of pre-vet, and uh, also doing part of literature, because... I discovered I was taking all the classes for that major, so I started doing both degrees, two different interests I had. And then start out doing some research because I knew somebody in a lab who was doing immunology research with tissue cultures. Absolutely hated it. Thought lab was the worst thing I'd ever experienced. There was a lot of personality issues in the lab. I was like, what is the P53 gene? Why am I making oxygen exposure to all these tissue cultures and mm -hmm. what's going on? And I didn't have enough of the background at the time to really care and so, about the topics. And um, so I stopped doing lab work at that point briefly and was looking for, like, what do I really like? Well, I like the brain. Um, and so I was interested always in uh, from other biology classes about the brain and how the brain worked. So I started looking for research in that, and I got into 
lab work. So I said, okay, I'm, I should try to give it one more shot. I hated lab, but I'll, I'll give it one more shot and see how it goes. I'll try something with the brain because it's cool. And actually called the wrong professor that people have the same name so i was trying to do one set of brain work and i called mm-hmm. the wrong one there's a lot of serendipity in my story but i got yeah, there awesome. called the wrong one and uh, it was ended up being sleep research which actually sounded really cool when i talked to the people there so i worked with uh, electrophysiology and rats studying sleep and REM yeah. sleep in rats and i they so undergrad they let me go into the surgical room of my own and i got to do all these rat surgeries and i learned rat cpr a little tube you could give them oxygen uh, yeah. and blow <laughs> in their mouth <laughs> Because the eye gases we use would often cause such a toy failure, so I had to make them thrive. So got very good at doing little implants and rat brains and measured sleep for a while. Um, while I was there, I was thinking about liking research now. So this was much more exciting. The brain for me was much more intriguing. I was also considering med school, and I was considering becoming an MD-PhD applicant as well, which I was nervous about because I heard it was really hard to get in and uh, didn't have any papers yet. And the PhDs, I worked with all PhDs and they were like, do not get a PhD. Just do not, there's no money in PhDs. <laughs> yeah. They were all really bitter looking back. There are these really bitter postdocs who couldn't get a job. Yeah. And so there are three of them like, do not go into PhD <laughs> program. You want to be an MD because you can get grants for research and you can be a doctor and you could have all these options. Mm-hmm. And I knew I wanted to go to med school at that point because I really liked the biology and the, of medicine. And so, I, I think I kind of chickened out applying to the dual program. So I applied to the MD program and got into Stanford again. So I stayed there. Um, I took a year off though, and uh, I was planning to take a year off always. And I had a friend who had done work in vision. Um, he was like, "Oh, my the lab I used to work in is looking for their friend of a friend is looking for a lab research assistant." So, um, like you, I was saying, I really liked San Francisco. Found it like an actual yeah. specific city, it's and I love San Francisco. So I wanted to live there for a year. And the Smith Kettlewell I Research Institute is located there. And my friend of a friend knew someone else who needed a research assistant, and I ended up working in vision with monkeys. Mm-hmm. And so I moved into single unit recording instead of EG and rats. The single unit recording went from cells to mice, or sorry, cells to rats to monkeys, getting closer to larger scale systems. Yep. So I started doing eye movement work in monkeys and really enjoyed that. And it was um, one of the first days I got to hear I could neuron doing something no other one, no one else ever heard it do. It was really cool to hear those cells firing. And so I worked there for a year while applying to med school and really enjoyed it. So I started falling in love with research, I think, about this point in time, between like the rat surgeries and now working with monkeys and really understanding the questions we we're asking and looking at um, smooth pursuit eye movements and how these were controlled with the cortex. Mm-hmm. Went to med school, and Stanford had at the time a program that had a five-year program, five years, usually med schools, two years of classes and two years of clinics. And Stanford let you do three years of classes in research. And so they gave you a little more time and flexibility there, known for being a research-oriented school. Uh, I think they've since done away with that program, probably for the better. But at the time, it seemed really good to me <laughs> to do this plan. And I um, tried some imaging work and cardiac imaging, doing MRI of aortic blood flow mm-hmm. um, and how it changed with exercise. And I didn't like not working with the brain, but I liked the imaging. And so I found a lab on campus, which yep. you know, made my graduate lab, Brian Waldell's lab, doing functional MRI um, of vision again. So I came back again. This was a, the friend of the guy I'd worked for. His girlfriend worked in the Waldell lab. And so again, it's I like... It's all connection-based. It's all connection-based. Yeah. So I found someone else <laughs> who... And so I came to that lab and started working there. And I was just going to do like a project for med school. But I really started falling in love with the research um, and in med school, you have to learn lots and lots and lots of material. And many students want to learn the minimum requirement because there's so much material, they don't want to learn extra. And I found that I wanted to always know how things work more. And so for me, there's actually an epiphany day when I was debating maybe trying out on a PhD or not, when a student, a med student in class raised his hand and asked to ask the professor to stop telling them how things worked because he wanted wow. to know yeah. 
He just needed to know what he had to do to treat the patient because he had too much information. He couldn't deal anymore with how these things work. And I was like, well, I want to know how they work. And so yeah. I decided I wanted to take some time off and do the PhD in the middle. Still, I was thinking about going to neurosurgery or neurology. So I did. I, I ended up applying to uh, the NIH has a specific uh, pre-doctoral grant program that lets you do an MD and a PhD simultaneously, much like the medical scientist training program you could apply to initially, but an individual grant for that. So I got a grant to stay as a PhD student and did my whole PhD for those four and a half years and then came back and finished medical school. I was still debating what to go do with this dual degree plan now. Um, while I was, I liked medicine a lot and found I was good at it and good at the bedside manner and patients, but I found the thing I liked the best was learning something new. And once I had that skill mastered, I was less excited about doing it for the next 30 years. I was more interested in like learning the next new thing. Um, and research really gave me that. So I started thinking about, do I want to stay in research? Do I want to do both? I knew I wanted to continue research, but it became a question of, do I do residency or not? And I had two little kids that had two babies along the way okay, in grad yeah. school. So I had like four and a half years in each program and six months off each time for a child. So I was pre- getting pretty busy. Yeah. But uh, I didn't really want to leave them. But I was dreading residency. And around this time, I got an email from UC Irvine, who didn't know I had grown up in Irvine, uh, saying, we saw you give a talk, we'd really like you to apply to our job search. And so I did, and I ended up getting the job. So I left, uh, graduated from med school and the PhD program I'd already finished, and I kind of did a postdoc with my lab and some joint collaborative work while I finished med school, so doing clinical rotations and coming back and forth from the lab. Um, and then I ended up back in Irvine as a professor. Great. And I'm going to stay there in research now. <laughs> awesome. Back, so. so based on your whole experience, Deciding MD versus PhD, mm-hmm. what would you tell somebody that is considering one or the other or the dual degree program? What are the sort of basic things do you, would you tell somebody? Yeah, so I, I get asked this a lot, actually. So I don't have the perfect answer, but I things to think about are um, what you want to do in your career in the long run. What kind of stability do you want? What kind of pay do you want also? Really try out each job if you can, if you're choosing between the two. Which is what you basically did. Which is what I ended up doing, right? So the looking back, I would probably still do the two programs again. I can't see picking just the PhD. I really loved medical school and what I learned. But to do the dual degree program, you have to really know why. And I think people do fall into a lot of these programs without really knowing why they're doing it. It's really hard to know. You haven't experienced these yet. Your parents may be pushing you to go to med school or the PhD program or whatever. Um, and it's, it's, I always tell students it's their career that's happening and it's starting as you start school. It's really not like starting undergrad. Uh, I think the number one thing I tell people to do is take a year off between college and grad school because that year makes a huge difference. When I saw people in med school, everyone who dropped out had not taken a year off. A number of people dropped out. There was also startups were happening in Silicon Valley at the time, but the, that year off, it may, you know, you'll be a little bit older when you finish, but you get that year off to try out research, to try out working in hospitals, to try a completely different job, to travel, to do something. So when you come back to graduate school, you can really focus on, like, my career starting now versus when's my next set of finals from college happening now that I'm in grad school. And yeah. People that just rolled forward. I mean, it works, but it had a hard time. Um, and so the soul-searching year is The soul-searching important. year, I think, yeah. is very important. I really yeah. got I did, and I'm, I still have a lot of soul-searching that I do over yeah. the next couple of years, but... Um, watching that people have done, I think that's the biggest thing. And just try them out. So one job you're going to be doing, working in clinics, working with patients. Um, and there are ways to get more creativity into medicine side. Um, they have to think about, do you want to stay in a long residency? Do you want to do a fellowship to really specialize? Do you want to get out quickly and um, make more money in all aspects? Med school bottleneck really seems to happen right away. Whereas the graduate programs, it's easier to get into graduate school, but much harder to get a job and in, so you have a little bit less stability in terms of 
Like once you get in the med school track, you get to residency, you tend to get a job, you're certain above a certain threshold of med school quality. Yeah, it's all laid out. It's all laid out for you at some point. And in PhD, which is good and bad, and the PhD program is more scary because you come out going, okay, I'm, I'm prepared, now what do I do? Mm-hmm. And it's a little uh, more worrisome to find postdocs and professorships for a small number. Um, and it, there's a harder time to move around and live different places with the PhD plan because you often need, like, I need to have an fMRI scanner at a university to work at, whereas with a medical degree, you can live a lot of different places with different types of lifestyles. Mm-hmm. So there's different types of flexibility. And then joint programs, um, for me, I watched a lot of people do dual careers, and they seemed to be really good at one or the other, but it was really hard to be good at both and still have, like, a family life and not go insane because there's so many hours demanded of you from both jobs. So yeah. I ended up picking, and it's just something to think about is in terms of uh, outside of neuroscience research, what sort of activities, you know, get this? Do you spend the most time on hobbies and stuff? Or I'm sure a lot of kids, you know, related <laughs> stuff. But. A lot of kid related stuff. Um, I have a lot of animals. I didn't become a vet, but I have a menagerie in my house. Lots and lots of animals. What kind of animals? Dogs, cats, birds, hamsters, guinea pigs, snake. Oh, Lizards, wow. frog, tortoise. <laughs> no awesome. rats currently. Let's see. Yeah. I think that covers it. No yeah. horses or rats currently. But yeah, a yeah, lot, yeah. lot of animals. So that's a lot of kid-related activity. Um, yeah. So we work, we do stuff with them. And uh, I read a lot. And I brainstorm with friends about a lot of educational things. And um, I have starting up some projects, hopefully online, looking at outreach type of issues. And then things like sports, like skiing. Mm-hmm. I've been recovering from back surgery for a year, so oh, wow. yeah. uh, looking forward to getting Is that back. that sports-induced injury? Or, yeah. Maybe over the years. Yeah. I, yeah. So I rode okay. horses and skied, and there was probably a lot of bouncing happening, so yeah. I have a major surgery last year, so mm-hmm. getting back there. So um, right now, if recovering from surgery has been a hobby, kind of on the side. Yeah, yeah. But Absolutely. it's... Uh, so that's a, there's definitely... Uh, one thing I like about this work, med school is very regimented and uh, in terms of the, what hours you work, and medicine is too in many cases. And I like I work all the time, but I, it's not my own hours. So I could be working all night one day and then sleep in the next day to recover and yeah. then work. So I have very variable hours, and I can make it fit kind of my lifestyle yeah. pretty well. And sort of going back to your undergrad, the comparative literature side <laughs> of you, does that manifest in... Yeah, I'm, yeah, it does. I still like reading quite a bit and analyzing books and I'm uh, working on some writing projects on the side and I think that gets into writing scientific papers now. I did a lot of writing. Stanford didn't have creative writing as a major, but um, I think that's how I got into comparative literature for that. So I did a thesis on poetry and stuff. (laughs) So I'm chaos theory with poetry. So it was, it was kind of random. Um, Literally. Yeah, (laughs) literally random. Exactly. So, uh, so yeah, that keeps me going on the side too. So I'm looking at different story ideas as I come up with different research ideas too. So it still stays integrated with uh, on the side, side, side hobbies. Great. Thanks for talking to us today. Yeah. Thank you awesome. for having me. Yeah. Thanks for listening to this episode of Brain Matters. We'd like to thank today's guests for joining us and you for listening. For more information about the science you heard today, please visit us at brainpodcast.com. See you next time on Brain Matters.